Welcome to Sound Lore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk with people about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Luke. And I'm David McDonald. Today on Sound Lore, you'll hear from Dr. John Kay about his recent books, The Expressive Lives of Elders and Memory, Art, and Aging, a Resource and Activity Guide. In addition to his role as Director of Traditional Arts Indiana, Dr. John Kay is Associate Professor of Folklore in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at IU, where he has taught courses in Indiana folklore and folklife and public practice methodologies. He is also author of Folk Art and Aging, Life Story Objects and Their Makers. Lydia Campbell-Mayer is a PhD candidate in ethnomusicology at Indiana University Bloomington. In her work for TAI, she focused on traditional arts and creative aging research and public programming. She currently serves as the Community and Arts Engagement Director for Lotus Education and Arts Foundation. I am Lydia Campbell-Mayer. I'm a PhD candidate in ethnomusicology, minoring in folklore. I'm here with John Kay, my former boss at Traditional Arts Indiana and my current mentor and friend. And John, I'd, I'd love you to start by just telling us a little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm John Kay. I direct Traditional Arts Indiana. It's a statewide folk arts program based at Indiana University. Uh, we're just getting ready to move into our new digs over at the uh, uh, Cook Center for Public Arts and Humanities. So we're going to move right down to the historic crescent right in the middle of campus. So we're really excited about that. Uh, I'm talking to you via Zoom here uh, from Brown County, Indiana, next county over from Monroe County, where Bloomington and IU is. And I'm a public folklorist. I've worked as a public folklorist uh, for... 25 years. Thank you. And, you know, I loved working with you and getting to hear a lot of stories throughout that time. And I'm wondering if you could tell the story about how you first got into folklore. What led you to folklore? Well, it was really more of a dance, I'd have to say. It was kind of like a, a process of moving in and out. Uh, uh, as I said, I, I grew up in southern Indiana. Uh, I had a grandfather who instilled in me stories and interest in, in old traditional ways. We'd go out gin singing. We'd, uh, we'd plant a garden together. I still grow the goose beans that he used to grow uh, when I was a kid. Uh, I, I learned that old objects carried long stories with them sometimes. Uh, and so that was probably part of it. I was also a child of the bicentennial. And so there was a lot of interest in, in uh, culture at that time, but also a more diverse culture, uh, idea of, of, uh, of uh, every community having a, a narrative, not just the national narrative. Uh, and so that was part of it. And I, I went to, um, uh, came to IU, and I just happened to take a, a folklore course with a man by the name of Warren Roberts. Uh, and it was like, wait, you mean you can study this stuff? I, I had no idea that you could actually take classes in, in learning about old traditional ways of life. And he taught me to look at old buildings and to read landscapes. And it was really, uh, really great to do that. And then 
I was also playing music at the same time uh, with uh, various people. I uh, was a dulcimer player and uh, I was traveling all over the Eastern United States. And eventually I was making enough money that, uh, that uh, I, I'll put it this way. I was making enough money that I couldn't pay my student, uh, uh, student bill each year. So I dropped out of school and I went to playing music full time for, uh, uh, for a few years. And, uh, uh, while I was out uh, on the road playing music, I did a festival with a woman by the name of Jean Ritchie, a famous dulcimer player. Uh, she worked with Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and uh, Doc Watson and was recorded by uh, Alan Lomax and, and uh, all of that. And so we, we did a concert together. And afterwards, she invited me back to the apartment where she was staying and we ordered pizza and we were all hanging out. My... Uh, uh, my wife and her ended up becoming really good friends, and uh, Jean let my wife Mandy try on her wedding ring, and Mandy was looking at it, and at, while she was looking at the wedding ring, she said to Jean, she said, Jean, what would you have done if you hadn't been a, a famous folk singer? And, and Jean got kind of serious, and she said, well, probably I really enjoyed being a teacher. I probably would have done more uh, more teaching of underserved uh, communities in underserved communities. Uh, and then uh, we all looked over at my, um, my friend, Maddie McNeil, who just passed away this year, uh, another well-known dulcimer player and uh, who was eating pizza with us that night. And she said, in, in a perfect world, I would have become a Catholic priest. Um, we all kind of chuckled uh, a little bit. And then Jean uh, looked at me and uh, and she asked me what, what I would have done if I hadn't been a, a rock and roll dulcimer player out on the out on the festival circuit. And uh, she, uh, I said to her, I said, well, I really enjoyed doing folklore work. I enjoyed uh, recording people's stories and documenting uh, traditions. And she uh, got real even more serious. And she said, you would have been a good one that kind of always stuck in the back of my mind. And uh, a few years later, I decided, you know, I'm getting kind of tired of driving so much, playing music. And I really, most of what I really like to do is still interview people and talk to people about crafts and music and, and stories. Uh, and so I came uh, back to school and got my bachelor's degree, ended up going to uh, Western Kentucky to get my master's degree. Uh, studied with uh, Michael Ann Williams and Erica Brady and Larry Danielson and Ludwig Mattel. Several great uh, experiences down there. But while I was there, I also uh, gained a mentor and a man, uh, Bob Gates. He was a state folklorist of uh, Kentucky. Uh, and uh, I helped him uh, first summer between my first year and my second year of grad school. I did... Uh, folklore field work in Bell County, uh, Kentucky, way over in the, about as far south and as far east as you can go uh, in the state, interviewing ballad singers and basket makers and, and uh, all types of, of traditional arts, uh, wood carvers and dulcimer builders and all, all types of things. Uh, and uh, then the next summer, I helped him plan the uh, Kentucky Folklife Festival, the very first one of those. And so I started going over there and I did everything from help build the marble yard where they shot roly hole marbles to 
uh, writing all the well, a lot of the text for the uh, signage for the for the festival. Uh, and then uh, actually did a lot of work running the narrative stages there. And I really think I learned to be a public folklorist, both doing the field work for him, but also doing the narrative stages. And I realized that a lot of the work that I did as a performer uh, was really my training ground for being able to help others present themselves in their traditional arts. And that's how that, how I kind of came to the work of a public folklorist, starting from when I was a a kid to moving into this kind of performer uh, aspect to then moving into the scholarly part and then branching back out into the actual practice of doing public folklore. Thank you. I must be a, a secret folklorist because I love those origin stories so much. I know we're here to talk a little bit about um, some recent publications as well. So um, let's start with talking about your 2018 publication, The Expressive Lives of Elders folklore, art, and aging. Can you tell us a little bit about this volume? Sure, I, I'd be happy to. It, it's really the follow-up work uh, to my, my first book, which was based on my dissertation, um, Folk Art and Aging, uh, Life Story Objects and Their Makers. And as I started my origin story, um, one of the things my grandfather did uh, was he had a um, uh, he used to set press, set letter, uh, the type for newspapers. Uh, and when they switched over from the old way of doing type uh, to a, a newer system, uh, he brought those drawers that held the, the letters and the fonts and, and things in it. He brought that home and he hung them up on the wall and they were ready-made shadow boxes that he put found arrowheads and pocket knives and different uh, mementos from throughout his life. And he would tell stories with those objects. And I became really interested in the relationship between material culture and uh, and storytelling, and that cuts through a, a lot of the work that I, that I do. But it wasn't until later that I started thinking about, I see what communities get from elders who continue traditional arts, this kind of idea of, of, of uh, the expressive practices, but what do the elders get out of, uh, out of these cultural practices. Uh, and so I, uh, I, that became the focus of that book was kind of thinking about what is the value of, of the making of things, of the performing of things, of the sharing of things. And that led to really want to double down on looking at the expressive lives of elders in a much larger, in a much larger way. Uh, so in 2018, we did a book with Indiana University Press uh, about the expressive lives of elders, and it ends up being an edited volume with several wonderful les uh, lessons in it, chapters in it, from uh, canning to uh, uh, more stories about life story objects to um, healing practices. Uh, narrative uh, runs throughout, and part of the introduction to that book ends up being uh, me just really talking about uh, the bigger part of the expressive practices of elders, the history of folkloristics uh, associated with folklorists, forging these important relationships with elders, and how we haven't necessarily theorized and problematized and and uh, explored fully the the age of many of the of the informants and collaborators that we work with. Uh, and so I wanted to, to, to 
create a book that at least pushed us uh, down that road a little bit. And one of the concepts that I, uh, I put forward in there is a concept of uh, folkloristic gerontology. Uh, gerontologists are those people who use their, their training uh, to support uh, the health, wellness, and well-being of uh, older adults. And uh, I saw that folklorists are involved in that. And there, many of them are doing work that's very similar to, to the type of work that social workers and gerontologists do. Uh, and so I built upon the work of people like Alan Jabor, uh, who, uh, who was, did work in this area in the 1970s, and, and Simon Bronner, who uh, probably did some of the more theoretical work on this, and, uh, and several other people. And so in the introduction to that volume, uh, I lay out uh, this idea of folkloristic gerontology and basically say, come on in, the water's fine. Join us. Let's do uh, more work in this area. Thank you so much. That was, I was going to get to the idea of folkloristic gerontology. Next, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, some of the, the challenges that face elders um, in the area of health, wellness, and well-being, and how folklore plays a role in that. Dr. Bill Thomas, uh, I think he was the one, although it's, it, the history of it is a little murky, I think he coined the the, the idea of um, the three plagues of aging, the idea of, of the things that beset older adults. Uh, and these are um, feelings of isolation, feelings of loneliness. Second, feelings of boredom. There's nothing to do. Uh, feelings of helplessness. So being alone, being bored, and feeling helpless. Uh, are kind of those things that challenge so many older adults uh, in the United States. Uh, and so I started thinking about, you know, the artists that I work with, you know, I, I'm really fortunate that I have, I won't call it a roster because there's not necessarily a list, but there's a long, uh, a large group of older adults that I've worked with uh, uh, throughout the years. Uh, and that, those three descriptions do not describe them. Uh, so many of the, of the accordion players and, uh, and, and quilters and uh, wood carvers and cooks, uh, you know, they're not alone, they're not bored, they're not helpless. Uh, they may go through moments when they deal with all of that, but it's not something that defines, uh, defines their lives. Uh, and so I started thinking, is there something about this idea of, of having a, an expressive practice, a, a, a traditional art or, or an expressive form that helps combat those three elements? And I, I, I really tried to focus on how traditional arts uh, keep us from being isolated and alone, uh, or at least experience those as feelings. How do they keep us from being bored? How do they serve as a, as a, as a, a safeguard against uh, boredom? And uh, I found in, in my work uh, that, that uh, traditional arts are really uh, not just a way, but I think in many ways, these expressive practices, these daily vernacular expressive forms are the way that older adults 
for for millennia have combated these types of feelings, how they keep from feeling so bored, alone, and helpless. So I, I would say that that is, uh, that is one thing that I really focused on. The other idea is in the world of, of um, creative aging, there's a, whole, there's a whole system out there in the world of creative aging work uh, that's going on. And there's been a, uh, a model where they have teaching artists and teaching artists then go into a senior center, a nursing home, a apartment facility, a community center, whatever. And they'll teach a workshop uh, and the elders will come, they'll sit around in a, in a group together, they'll paint or color or sing or dance or, or whatever uh, the, the art form may be. Uh, and then they, uh, they go back to their room or they leave and they, they stop. Uh, and I started thinking about those types of models of creative aging work and comparing it to those vernacular systems, those everyday systems that I uh, had studied. And I realized, wait a second, there's a lot of things that are good about the art, the creative aging, aging workshops that are happening. But there are things also that are not as, that maybe could be better if we look at it through the, the right lens. And so one of those lenses is actually something that Alan Jabour pointed out many years earlier in 1978, I believe. Uh, he, he said, uh, creative aging work, I'm paraphrasing here, creative aging works best when it aligns with the person's individual and cultural identity. Uh, that actually, you know, it's not, uh, it's not classical music that is the thing that helps older adults. It's having relevant music uh, for them. And so trying to make sure that you're zeroing in on the thing that's appropriate uh, for that community. And so that means uh, uh, in some places, maybe a, a quilting workshop may do a lot more good than a watercolor workshop. Uh, or maybe a singing workshop may do a lot more good than a dance workshop. Uh, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, and so it's not that... It's not that classical music or fiddle music are necessarily better at uh, serving older adults. It's about getting things that actually align with a person's cultural and individual identity. Uh, and so I, uh, I started thinking about looking at these very community-specific ways that creative practices support older, um, support older adults and how they may align with, uh, with these ideas of identity, but also work against those three plagues uh, that I talked about. And so when someone, uh, uh, when someone is, a, is a traditional artist, maybe they, uh, uh, well, I'll talk about my friend Bob Taylor, woodcarver, grew up, started carving when he was eight years old, worked as a pattern maker his whole life, uh, and then carves these memory scenes now in his in his retirement. Now, you would think, I mean, he spends large amounts of time actually sitting at his bench, making plans, drawing, uh, um, carving, you know, creating his his pieces. And you go, well, how does that help him not be lonely? He's in his basement by himself doing this work. Well, the whole time that he's actually doing that work, He's transcending his alone time with this idea that he's going to connect with others 
uh, in the future. In fact, when he's planning it, he'll go out and he'll show his drawings to people. He'll get their stories. He'll practice telling the story of the of the carving that he's doing. He'll get their their feedback as well. Uh, and then he will uh, he'll work on it. He'll take it out as he's working on it and get more feedback on it. Then once it's completed, he's showing that. And so there's a way in which the alone time uh, is actually not truly alone. And it's not being alone that's the problem. It's the idea of loneliness, the idea of isolation uh, that is the problem, the idea that you're, yeah, uh, you feel alone. Uh, and he doesn't experience that, at least it doesn't seem to me, because he's using it to transcend that, uh, that alone time. Uh, when you're able to recreate a whole landscape from memory, when you're able to make something, uh, that's, an, that's an, uh, a natural way in which people show that they are not helpless. Whether that's being able to, to uh, bake a loaf of banana bread for somebody uh, 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 that you take to them at church, or whether it's making a baby blanket for, uh, for a grandchild, uh, or something. If you're able to still do something, you feel that helps combat this idea of helplessness. Uh, and so these creative practices, you can still go to that music jam. Uh, you can still go to the dance on on, uh, on Thursday afternoons. Uh, so you want to make sure that uh, you have all of those things uh, together. You're not helpless. You're not bored because you've always got these things that you can do uh, whether you're alone or with others. Uh, and, and these traditional practices um, help transcend, uh, transcend that, I think. I just, I love the idea of thinking about older elders as not helpless because I was lucky enough to get to do some field work when I worked with you, John, and the older adults I met were far from helpless. They were vibrant. They were creating beautiful things. They were learning every day. So I really like that emphasis. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about um, another publication you have, which is the Memory, Art, and Aging Resource and Activity Guide. Can you tell us about that, please? Sure. Of course, I could turn the plate around and say, could you tell us about it? Because you actually helped work on it. You were one of the researchers and co-editors of the project and so I'm, I'm thankful to you for that but I always think of uh, if you've ever seen someone that that uh, chain smokes and they light one cigarette with the, the the end of the other one I always see kind of folklore projects as as that type of practice uh, I've heard that metaphor used with other writers that what you're finishing up at one time becomes the foundation for the next and so the, the Folk Art and Aging book really kind of led naturally into the Expressive Lives of Elders book. And then after doing the Expressive Lives of Elders, uh, I felt like, okay, I've put forward this idea of folkloristic gerontology. Now we need to do some type of project that actually is about uh, how to put traditional arts, express the vernacular expressive practices into practice for doing this type of work. How can we, how can we, uh, do this. And so I wrote a grant to the National Endowment for the Arts uh, in uh, 2017 with this idea that it needed to be very place-based. It needed to be uh, something that was based upon field work, uh, that we were going into communities and seeing what elders were doing there and what was working for older adults there 
and then try to come up with some strategies for how they, we could amplify the things that were working and to share those and create opportunities to foreground those types of things. And so uh, I worked with a, a group of graduate students, including you, Lydia, uh, and they went into communities and they uh, interviewed older adults and traditional artisans and organizational leaders and they uh, came back with a, a field work of what older adults had told them uh, and from that we created this uh, well before we created that we also did a, a, a few of these things we call creative aging summits where we went into communities uh, and basically we facilitated a a uh, kind of a community show and tell where older adults kind of held up examples of the work that they did or they sang a song or they recited a poem that they had written or, or uh, a tune on a harmonica or, or, or some, uh, some, other, uh, some other expressive form. Uh, and while they were do going through this show and tell, the whole time I'm kind of talking with the community uh, and the elders about what uh, what are the benefits of this type of work and asking them kind of doing that work that I talked about before hosting narrative stages. I was basically collaborating with them to deepen their express, uh, their expressions about what their art form means to them and how it benefits them in later life. Uh, and I think everyone who came to those, those uh, community gatherings uh, were really empowered and uplifted uh, by, uh, by the, that workshop. Uh, we came back from doing that as well as uh, some other types of workshops and we began writing up profiles of the people that, uh, that we did field work with. I also wrote up profiles of people uh, from, uh, from the region that I had done work with in the past uh, and we created these Profiles didn't just tell the stories of these people. We told the stories through the lens of what can we learn from them. Uh, and so there's very much an applied aspect of it. It's, here's a great story. Uh, here's an idea that I want to foreground in, in telling their story. Um, I should point out that we then turned around and gave copies uh, of those back to the older adults so that we weren't just being like ventriloquist with, with them, kind of using them as points, but actually they were able to tell us what they thought of it. And so they were able to give us some feedback so we weren't just using their stories. The, um, the, next, uh, the next phase, uh, we wrote up those stories and then we also created some activities uh, based upon things that I'd seen uh, in communities, things that I've seen that are, were done by other folklore programs, uh, and but gearing them more towards older adults. Uh, and so the Memory Art and Aging Guide is this, this uh, booklet, uh, booklet kind of short changes it, I think in name. It's like 80 pages long, full color glossy throughout. And um, uh, it's beautifully photographed uh, from our field workers and uh, it tells the stories of these people, gives activities for older adults to, to uh, participate in, offers suggestions for caregivers on how that they can employ this type of work. And it also stands as an invitation to other communities uh, 
because uh, remember it's place-based. Uh, it's an invitation to other communities to reach out to us because we want to continue to provide supplements to that are to uh, communities that are based upon uh, based on the specifics of their community. Uh, so we're actually getting ready to do the first one of those uh, in December. We're going. We're working with the African American community on the northeast side of uh, Indianapolis, uh, the Witherspoon Church up there, uh, and we're going to do a, a, cre a virtual creative aging summit uh, with them, with the idea that we hope that we'll be able to create uh, a supplemental resource guide for them that tells the story of the elders that came to that and the lessons that we learned from them. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's based upon field work, it's place-based, it tells inspiring stories of inspiring elders, uh, provides activities uh, to further and deepen uh, the work, and it stands as an invitation to uh, have people uh, reach out to us and to, for us to continue to do this type of work. Uh, because it's place-based, it's great for South Central Indiana, but there are other communities that, uh, that I think everyone will get something from it, uh, but there are ways that we can augment it to make it serve other communities better. Uh, so that's what my, uh, that, that, that's my story of the Memory Art and Aging Guide. Great, thank you. Yeah, there were a lot of people that um, were involved in that work. Um, Jenny Williams, my colleague, I have to give her a little shout out, and Emily Bryant, who did all the amazing, beautiful graphics. Um, and I like, John, that you talked a little bit more about how um, you want to continue with the place-based work, because I think we all saw that um, a lot of voices were excluded in that text. Um, and some of that being historically where the research happened and perhaps even our identities as researchers um, played a role in that. So I, Definitely. I'm, I'm happy to hear you're working with Witherspoon Presbyterian Church um, and Keisha Dixon. Um, there's some really amazing things that I think I am looking forward to learning from as well. Um, I'm wondering if you could choose, this is a hard question. Uh-oh one or two of your favorite profiles um, from that text, maybe the people you worked with in fieldwork? Oh, they're all my favorite profiles uh, of people uh, in the work. Uh, uh, I, I, and, and I'm not just using that as a, as a cop-out. I, I think that, I think we learn something from each person, don't you think, in doing your fieldwork, that e each person kind of added a, you know, at one point, you know, you can, you can say, oh, this person's a great example of X. But then there were also people that complicated that for us. Uh, and so it forced us, oh, we're going to tell their story, but they're, they're doing things a little bit different. And so we had to uh, interrogate our own way of, of how, we, how we presented people. Uh, but I, I think that... Um, uh, I could I could probably talk about about some people I uh, uh, that I I like that to tell the story uh, of them, um, in part because I think that there is um, uh, of the lessons that they teach us uh, through the artwork that they do. So one of the key concepts uh, in the guide is uh, uh, generativity 
this idea of, of um, caring for the next generation, this idea of wanting to pass on something of yourself, to put yourself into the future, this generative act of, of, uh, of making is often very much uh, at, at the heart of that, is putting something into the world that will extend past you. And, uh, and, and also generativity as in trying to pass on what you know to the next generation. And I think about uh, one of the artists in there is Alan Richards. Um, Alan is, uh, is one of my, not really a neighbor, lives up in the northern part of the county, but he makes uh, split rail fences here in Brown County. Uh, his learned from his uncles how to make split rail fences. Split rail fences have been part of uh, Brown, the Brown County landscape since the early 1800s. But when Alan does it, it, it's really not just about the past. It's not like historic reenactment. He's doing it alongside his grandson, Porter. Uh, and so the whole idea of trying to pass on not just how to make split rail fences, but a sense of where Porter came from. Uh, you know, he's from this community. The idea of passing on to him a work ethic that's valued very much in, in that family. Uh, and then working with your hands and working with the natural environment. Uh, and doing uh, doing all of that, uh, not just to perform for others or to make a fence for your house. So I think Alan uh, was a great example of, of generativity. One of the other artists I, I really like to talk about, and he just passed away just as the, as the book went to press, was my friend Glenn Hall down in Orange County, down in Paoli, Indiana. And Glenn... Uh, when he was a little kid, uh, made a uh, made a little plow to pull behind his toy tractor out of cutting up a baking powder tin and some baling wire, uh, and made a little four tine plow. They pulled behind his plow uh, behind his tractor, and he uh, uh, he did that when he was like six or seven years old, um, and uh, anyway. He uh, uh, went about, had a farm, took over the family farm, uh, made, uh, did work on repairing farm equipment and stuff, and always made stuff for the farm, you know. But then when he retired, he started making uh, metal sculptures, uh, putting, uh, uh, making things out of old gates and uh, gas cans and things like that, that he, trans, uh, he translated into something, uh, something new. Uh, and he, uh, one of the things he made was his three families uh, that, he, uh, that were life-size, made out of old tanks and, and funnels and different things. And they even made the family dog that he put with them. Uh, and he took those out and he'd set them down next to the road uh, for people to, to see. Uh, and people would stop and, and they'd go out and they'd take a picture. Uh, they'd want to take a picture of, uh, of these wild looking uh, sculptures that he made. And then before you know it, Glenn Hall's coming down to talk to him down next to the road because he saw somebody stop. What's the point there? Uh, some people would say, oh, just being creative is such a good way for your imagination and all that. And that's all very true. But Glenn Hall showed how he always talked about being in public, 
and the idea that he made things to fill the lonely time so that he also could share what he made with other people and to forge these one-on-one connections with people. Through making art while he was by himself, he was creating a strategy for being with other people, uh, telling, uh, being able to tell their, uh, their stories. My friend uh, Roy Spite is another person I would point out. Roy uh, is an African-American drum maker up in Indianapolis. Uh, and he died not long before uh, the, the booklet came out as well. He had been making drums. He learned to make drums from his friend, Prince Julius Adini, a Nigerian drummer, lived in Indianapolis. And uh, in fact, Prince would always go to him and have his drums repaired and stuff because Roy was just really good at making drums. And Roy would hear uh, would hear a chainsaw running in his urban neighborhood and he'd get in his truck and he'd go and he'd try to salvage any of the, of the old logs that he could use to take his chainsaw and hollow out and then proceed with the chisels and stuff to, to make these drums. Well, uh, drumming and drum making became kind of central for him uh, in later life. It became this defining element that allowed him to do things like generativity, caring for his community through this. He loved to do demonstrations. He loved to to make drums for other people. It created great sociability uh, in his life as well. It gave him something to do, even as his health uh, declined. In, In the last few years, he had some cognitive decline. Uh, and his wife told me when I went to the funeral, she said, uh, you wouldn't have believed even when you would have thought he couldn't even sit up in bed, he'd drag himself out to the side of the house and he'd start up a chainsaw or he'd work with the chisels and he'd be working on making a drum. And so, yeah, he'd been making drums for 25, 30 years. The point is, is he had something that gave him something to do every single day of his life. And he was creatively active to the very end. And I could tell you story after story after story of people who, even when you think that they couldn't do it uh, any longer, it gave them a reason to endure. It gave them a reason to continue. Uh, And, you know, that's my hope for everybody in the world that they find that thing that makes them want to not just crawl out of bed, but jump out of bed every day of their life. I think that leads really well into this next kind of wrap up question about what are your hopes for creative aging work for the future um, and folkloristic gerontology? Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're able to kind of continue these community creative aging summits. Uh, But I see that really as just kind of, trying to create some models. My hope is that other people will take up this type of work. I hope that in other states, other colleagues uh, will realize that um, we are in a a major change in the United States and in the world. Uh, For the first time in human history, I I don't know what the pandemic has done to uh, to this number, I haven't heard. Uh, But sometime this year, there was supposed to be a transition from where there are more people over the age of 65 than under the age of, I think it was 18, for the first time in human history. We are all living to be older. Uh, Aging is is uneven. 
something is coming to everyone, uh, but some communities are better prepared for it than others. That was one of the reasons we did uh, the creative aging survey and the, the resource guide was because Indiana was facing, uh, you know, it was like 47 out of 50 states in the quality of life of older adults, according to, uh, to a Gallup poll. Uh, we, we thought we need to do something to try to at least foreground uh, that current situation. Uh, and I think that maybe we've started to move the needle. I think maybe we've got a little bit of uh, attention uh, of what these vernacular practices are doing in the lives of older adults. But my hope is that others will actually pick up the torch and kind of carry this forward. Folklorists were at the, the, the vanguard of doing this work. People like um, Steve Zeitlin, and Mary Hufford, and, and Marjorie Hunt, uh, and Barbara Kirschenbach-Gimlet, and, and Barbara Meyerhoff, all had done incredible work on creative, creative aging in the, uh, uh, in the 1970s. But then things changed, funding changed, uh, and it wasn't necessarily uh, a primary focus. So I think a lot of my work really about reviving uh, some, of, uh, some of those earlier efforts Thank you. And of course, I want to give you one final opportunity. Is there anything else you, you wanted to say in this podcast today? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that I, I should say a wholehearted thank you to uh, a lot of people, uh, not just uh, um, the Indiana Arts Commission that funds uh, Traditional Arts Indiana that I direct, um, the National Endowment for the Arts that gave us the money to do this type of work that employed graduate students and, and, and scholars uh, for those summer months to do this important work and to pay artists to, to participate in things. Um, uh, but also the colleagues in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology uh, and the students that are there uh, just that always were kind of, I learn as much from them uh, as I teach. Uh, and so I think that that kind of collaborative learning is is really at the heart of things. So I think just a hearty thank you. I'm just, uh, I'm, I tell people I'm the most unlikely of professors. Uh, I never went to school to become a professor. Uh, I just happened to end up directing Traditional Arts Indiana, which was based at IU. And I've continued to learn from so many people and have been given so many wonderful opportunities based upon uh, those relationships. So I'm, I'm thankful to a great many people. Soundlore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and Some Other Clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.